Welcome to the Stereoactive Movie Club. My name is Jeremiah, and I am here with Alicia, Laura, Mia, and Stephen. And we're going to be talking about the 1950 film Rashomon, directed by Akira Kurosawa. But first, let's introduce ourselves. Laura, other than Rashomon, have you watched any movies since we last recorded? Well, it all started with a haircut. I woke up um, wanting this specific 90s haircut that Demi Moore had in a film called Indecent Proposal. So I went out, I got the haircut from Kenna Land by Kenna, who's amazing. And, and then I went home and watched the film. It's, it was 1993 directed by Adrian Lin, who also did Nine and a Half Weeks, stars Woody Harrelson, Demi Moore, and Robert Redford. And of course, it's dated in terms of the social mores and the themes. And the sex scenes were full on softcore porn, but um, that doesn't necessarily make it unenjoyable film. Like, <laughs> I really enjoyed watching it. And there was a lot of chemistry I, I, that I still think was worth it to rewatch. And I really enjoyed that. There's this one scene, though, where Robert Redford starts talking about how he sees a girl on a bus and he to every day since he regrets not talking to the girl on the bus. And I kept thinking about it. And then I re list, I listened to our citizen Kane episode and yeah. I was like, Holy shit. They just took Mr. Bernstein's <laughs> and kind of changed it up for a 1993, like sex film. And I was like, that's pretty ballsy for a screenwriter to do. So that was, that was interesting. <laughs> Isn't it funny when that movie came out, like people were saying, would you do that for a million dollars? Yeah, it's it's um, it's amazing how the like the reactions then versus how it potentially would be now. But or, you know, women as property kind of concepts still very, very, revel you know, prevalent in the 90s. But um, I would definitely recommend a fun you know, rewatch if you're in the mood for like a fabulous haircut look and style for Demi Moore. Okay. And Mia, how about you? Um, I haven't watched any movies because I've been obsessively watching Hidden Potential, which is this HGTV show <laughs> uh, that is Jasmine. Has anyone else seen it? By any no, chance? No. I think it's, well, yeah, Jeremiah. <laughs> Jeremiah <laughs> is raising his hand. <laughs> um, it is new-ish, I think. It's new to me, at least. Um, and it's, you know, obviously in the vein of, like, Fixer Upper and those kind of shows. But I really like it because it's just a woman. She's not part of a couple doing this. And she's the designer and the builder. And really seems like she's actually actually knows what she's doing with, like, a drill and all of these things. As opposed to just, like, a lot of times in these shows, they have the stars do, like, one thing. And then they just go off. But she seems like she really actually does this stuff and isn't just, like performatively screwing something into a wall but yeah and the whole conceit of it is like houses in suburbia that all look the same and she like paints the garage gray and it's different than all the other houses in the neighborhood suddenly but it's really good episodes are short which kind of makes me sad because i would actually watch longer episodes of these um but yeah highly recommend hulu hgtv okay and uh so i saw star trek 3 the search for spock which is kind of forgettable i also watched Zack Snyder's Justice League, which I did not expect to, to watch, a four-hour uh, superhero movie. And, I mean, it's better than what was in theaters, but that's faint praise because um, that was the most forgettable movie ever, maybe. Um, I mean, it was entertaining, but it, I don't think it needed to be four hours, for sure. Um, and then I also, this morning, I watched uh, uh, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Because I'm on a kick. Wow. Neat. So, okay. The only Star Trek movie my mom likes, by the way. Steven, how about you? Um, I it was funny because last week or last podcast, Laura had mentioned that she had watched single. So it kind of got me on a kick to watch another 90s classic, which was Reality Bites. Um that was made in 1994, um, starring Ben Stiller, who also directed it, and Ethan Hawk went on a writer. Uh, Steve Zahn, Janine Garofalo. Um, it's a slice of life kind of thing. It takes place in Houston, which I guess I didn't really realize when I had seen it the first time around, but it was enjoyable. It's definitely a 90s movie with the haircuts and the attitudes. And mm -hmm. I do remember seeing it and thinking like, you know, Ethan Hawke's character was the guy that everybody wanted to be. And then later on, like when you watch it now, 
It's just like Ben Stiller's kind of a jerk, but he at least is more of a regular he has guy. A fucking job. Yeah, he does. <laughs> and these other people are so insufferable. And maybe because I'm a lot older, and I'm, you know, I, you know, when you watch it when you're in your twenties, you definitely think differently about that movie. But um, it was still enjoyable, and it was kind of fun because I'd seen it in Italy with a bunch of my friends, and we had never heard of the movie. We just knew it was an American movie, so we all went and saw it, and it was it was great. So that's awesome. You know, when I realized I was full on old is when I rewatched Say Anything and I was like, I can't believe she's taking him to fucking England. Like, <laughs> he's got no goals, no ambition, no job. Like, what a bad decision. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Same. Yeah, with Troy. Yeah, Troy like, in that wow. movie, you're just like, he is so insufferable. He's just yeah, like the well actually Go buy your guy. no soul bought of... conversation somewhere else. Take yeah, it, it, it's, it's insufferable. Go Sorry. Oh. And Very Steve different. Zahn was like, I didn't even know why he was even in the movie. He didn't really do much. He's in but that anyway. movie? Because he, yeah. he was the coming out scene. So. Yeah, but he was barely in it. He had like, I, I don't know. I felt like Janine Garofalo also wasn't in it that much, but she at least like made a, a presence known. But he was kind of forgettable. But anyway. Definitely. And Alicia, how about you? Um, I watched Minari and Promising Young Woman this week. Um, and I really liked Minari. It was really good and um yeah just really heartfelt and and funny too and uh yeah i liked it a lot and um promising young woman was like it probably deserves its own podcast there's a lot going on there mm. um <laughs> i liked the concept a, a lot but i have some questions about the execution i thought there were some weird little things in there that that um anyway just had me kind of like questioning taking me out of the what is it the disbelief that the suspension right. of disbelief yeah so but uh but otherwise i i thought the acting and everything was good and um so yeah those are the two that i watched you can listen to me talk about promising young woman on one of jeremiah's other podcasts mm. what's it called it's called break the radio weekly and where can the people hear it at btrtoday.com slash listen slash btr weekly there you go yeah, yeah it's my first go. podcast thing and i've been avoiding it you should watch I'm, it I'm, it's it's not bad i just wanted to be emotionally prepared it looks yeah. great and i've just been it's I, not, i'm gonna do it sorry i'm ready it, it's not as intense as you would think it would be from the trailer especially the trailer makes it look like this high octane thriller mm -hmm. almost action movie revenge thing and it's really not that it's it's got a completely different vibe than the trailer leads you to believe and that was like a lot of what our discussion was yeah. about about the expectations set for that movie were kind of way off um and if you can just take it sort of as its own thing i think it would be so much better but it's just like you got to get over what you think it's going to be because it's not that i've seen a lot of think pieces by writers that i respect that i have avoided but mm -hmm. The key word is triggering. So I've just yeah. been trying to wrap my head around that right. before I watch it. Well, also it's, I was reading some review of it and it was, it's supposed to be a dark comedy. I really didn't find it funny at all. Like I, I did not find anything funny about it. It mm. was like a stressful watch the whole way through. Maybe that's just, I mean, it was written and directed by a woman. So I would think that it wouldn't just be, it wouldn't just be me as a woman experiencing it that way, but I just didn't find a comic at all. <laughs> uh, not at all. But anyway. Fair enough. Uh, so for those who may not have listened to the show before, this is a podcast where the five of us are discussing movies that have appeared on Sight and Sound Magazine's poll of the, quote, greatest movies ever made that comes out every 10 years. And we're basically using it as our own prompt to watch some classic movies ahead of the next poll, which will be out in 2022. We invite listeners to take part in the discussions by watching along and sharing their opinions in our Facebook group or by emailing or leaving a voice message on our anchor.fm show page. And again, this time we're talking about Rashomon. But before we get into the history and background of the movie, um, what did each of us know about Rashomon going into this viewing? Like who's seen it before or what were you expecting, if anything? And since this movie was my pick. I guess I'll start us off. So I first saw Rashomon when I was in high school and first starting to really get into movies seriously. I think I remember it being mentioned a lot in reference to Quentin Tarantino's first movies 
and how he used fractured story structures, even though I think he was doing a different thing. It wasn't necessarily about perspective and points of view or anything, but I do remember him being referenced um, in those reviews. And I, I remember really being taken by the movie and wanting to watch more of Kurosawa's work. And uh, I, I may have seen it another time since then. I really can't remember. But either way, it's definitely been a while since I saw it. And basically, I picked this movie because it had been so long since I saw it, and I'd already wanted to rewatch it uh, recently. I was actually going to pick Tokyo Story, but Alicia picked it before I could. So this was my second choice, even Sorry. as much as I did want to pick it. So no, I'm, I'm still was glad for the uh, excuse to watch it. So there you go. Um, and Alicia, had you seen the movie before or, or what did you know about it, if anything, going in? Yeah, I had seen it once before. Um, like when I first subscribed to Netflix, I went on a big like foreign film kick and rented, you know, like pretty much all the big name foreign films that I had never seen. Um, and this was one of them. And yeah, so I had seen it before and that's what I knew going in. <laughs> okay. And Mia, did you know anything about the movie? I had never seen it before. I didn't even Google it before we watched it. So I went in totally cold. Okay. Did you not even know like the concept of the different? Literally nothing. Okay. And Steven? Um, yeah, you know, I had watched this movie probably 20 years ago. Um, and it was mainly because it's been referenced so much in TV shows as, uh, you know, they describe a you know, this episode is like Rashomon or it's Rashomon-like. Um, so I knew that it was like varying perspectives of the same story. So I wanted to watch it to get some sort of context for what they were talking about. So I have seen it before. Um, and I definitely got a lot more out of it this time around than I did the first time I'd seen it since mm -hmm. I kind of let it wash over me. But yeah, so I'd seen it before. And Laura, how about you? Um, I watched Seven Samurai in high school film class. And I obviously heard of Akira Kurosawa. Kurosawa because I worked at Scarecrow Video and it was um, alphabetized by director. So he had a huge section and a lot of people were really obsessed with this film, but this movie I never watched before. Okay, and uh, so uh, about the movie, as I mentioned in our Citizen Kane episode, as I was first seriously getting into movies, I got this book called The Ultimate Encyclopedia of the Movies. And other than hearing about Rashomon in relation to Tarantino, as I mentioned before, this book is probably where I first really learned much else about the movie, so I wanted to read the entry on it from, from the book. Set in 11th century Japan, Rashomon is the story of the rape of a nobleman's wife by a bandit in the forest, the death of her husband, and the woodcutter who witnessed the incident. It is told from the different viewpoints of four participants, one of them now a ghost, each of whom has a different version of what happened. Helping to frame the telling is a priest sheltering from the rain under the ruined Rashomon gate and describing the bandit's trial alongside the woodcutter involved in the incident. The study in ambiguity, rich in symbolism and psychological understanding, has become a benchmark in cinema for its experimental style. Though by no means typical of Kurosawa's work, it is a monument to both his artistry and his humanity. It also contains a group of remarkable performances, particularly from Toshiro Mifune as the bandit. There are two contradictory interpretations of the story, that it illustrates the philosopher's contention that there are many truths versus the widely accepted crude logic that there is only one set of true facts, therefore three out of the four testifying characters are lying, and that the film is about human fallibility and dishonesty, and that humanity, like the Rashomon Gate, is crumbling. Rashomon reintroduced Japanese film to the world market, winning the top prize at the 1951 Venice Film Festival and an honorary Oscar for Best Foreign Film. This and subsequent films made Kurosawa a cinema figure of world stature, although Rashomon is probably still his most widely seen film. And for our purposes, though the film has made Sight & Sound Magazine's critics poll of the greatest films ever made, it's never been in the top 10 or one of the first runners-up, which surprised me, but it has been in the top 10 of the director's poll twice. It was number 10 in 1992, and it was number 9 in 2002. And for a bit of context about what movies were popular here when Rashomon arrived in the United States in 1951, An American in Paris won Best Picture at the Oscars, while George Stevens won Best Director for A Place in the Sun. And that's a movie that Alicia mentioned in a recent episode, so I thought that was worth uh, citing. And MGM's Quo Vadis 
a historical epic set in the Roman Empire, was the highest grossing movie in North America. Uh, kind of similar to uh, when we spoke about Tokyo Story last time, and The Robe was like the big popular movie of that year when that uh, movie was out in Japan. And for some further historical context, apparently the movie did well in Japan, but Japanese critics weren't into it as much. So when it ended up being well-received in the West, many of them assumed it was because of the film's Western influences, which is maybe something we'll get into a little bit in our discussion. And why don't we go ahead and start off by getting everyone's first reactions to watching it for the podcast. Three of us have seen it before, and did it meet your expectations if you hadn't seen it before? Did it live up to the memories of it if you had? And Alicia, do you want to start us off? Sure. Yeah, I like this movie. Um, and I, I, to be honest, my memory of it was pretty foggy. Sometimes that happens to me with black and white movies. I'm kind of embarrassed to say, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but yeah, I like, I like this movie. I like the concept. I think it's a cool concept. Um, and so, yeah, it did live up to my expectations of it because my expectations were pretty, as I said, pretty blurry. <laughs> <laughs> and Stephen, how about you? Um, yeah, it did live up to my expectations. Um, I did see it, like I said, a, a, about 20 years ago. I remembered it being a lot more like action oriented and less cerebral. So this time around, I actually was paying attention more to the performances. And the final story actually was a little bit more nuanced than I had remembered it. I, re I, I thought like the, the woman character was a lot worse. Like she came off a lot worse the first time I had seen it. And then this time she was a lot more, um, it was a little bit more gray. Um, instead of it just being like one side or the other. Um, but overall, yeah, it was it was really great. I really enjoyed it. So as the third person who'd seen the movie before, I'll say that uh, I remembered like kind of the visual aesthetic of the movie more than I remembered anything other than the basic form of it and like the, the concept of it, which is so well known, especially as Stephen was pointing out, it's like been imitated so often. Um, but I'd, I'd kind of forgotten the particulars of it because it had been so long and that said though like a lot of what I remembered about it definitely lived up to it it's it's such like a I think a striking visual movie in the way he moves the camera and and follows these characters and tells the story that all that like kind of lived up to what I did remember and then the stuff that I kind of filled back in from having forgotten was kind of just as impressive as the first time I saw it I thought um, and then um, Laura or Mia, does one of you want to take it first as the people who hadn't seen the movie before? I'm curious what, what you all thought. Um, well, you know, the way the story was told, I thought was really cool. I, I have to say the film didn't itself didn't sit well with me. It took me a while to figure out why, which we can go into later. But overall, the film in terms of filmmaking, I was struck by the use of light within each shot and I was really impressed by the fight and action sequences and the movement of the actors in each scene. I felt the movement of the actors really took me through a film that I genuinely didn't like and um, made it something experientially that I enjoyed on some level. Mm -hmm. And Mia? Yeah, um, I thought it, I mean, I went into it with no expectations, so, but I thought it was a very classic movie in that like about, I don't know, halfway through, I was like, wow, this could have come out last year, 10 years ago. If you told me this was like an indie, a new indie film from Japan, I totally would have believed it. So I thought that was cool that like, even though this is a 71 year old movie, that it still felt really fresh. Um, and like the story was really interesting with the different perspectives and definitely made me think a lot and I think especially comparing it to Tokyo Story it was just such a different movie I actually think mm -hmm. out of all the movies we've watched so far for the podcast this was the most just straightforward in a way of like there's action there's this okay it's over even though you're left with all these questions um but yeah I thought it was like a solid film for sure Stephen I'm curious since since you mentioned being familiar with the kind of trope of what Rashomon is as as like a story archetype, uh, at least since it first premiered, and you it seemed like you were familiar with other things, especially television. I think you said that have have imitated its form. I'm curious, like, did that 
seem to take anything away from you because even as we've talked about in the few episodes of the podcast we've done at this point um you know like when you, when you go back to the thing that was the originator of a lot of stuff you've seen since then but you didn't see that first thing like sometimes it can not live up because you've seen all the imitations first so i'm, I'm curious how that sat for you I thought the storytelling was done in a way that it, it hadn't been duplicated, I guess, in a lot of the other things that I had had watched that kind of followed that same format. Um, so I, I feel like it, it was just more than a movie that just told things from different perspectives. There was definitely um, just more of an interest level for me just to see where the story was going to go. And it was, it was fascinating that you would ask that question about, um, which you'll talk about later, about like, is it more of a mystery you know, mm -hmm. or is it just a, a story that's being told? And mm -hmm. from that perspective, there was a little bit more added to it in that in that way. Well, why don't we go ahead and get to that question then? So so my question for the group on this movie, since it was my pick, was that um, one thing that comes up with the movie is that some people take it as a study of ambiguity, while others tend to see it more as a puzzle that they need to solve. And personally, I think trying to solve it sort of defeats the purpose of what Kurosawa was going for, but I was curious what everyone here thinks. Do you think there's anything to trying to solve it like it is a mystery, or does that defeat the purpose? So, Stephen, I mean, do you want to start us off since you were kind of referencing that? Um, yeah, I mean, because I had watched it through, you know, this is the I watched it maybe two and a half times because I watched it a little bit again after you had asked that question. And yeah, like when you approach it in a different way, if it's a mystery to be solved, you sort of look for pieces of information throughout that to see if it supports being a mystery and you're never really sure what happened. And at the end of the movie, you're never really sure what happened, but you know, there's certain pieces that kind of fit together. It's sort of like, you know, when you saw the, the bystander, you know, when the, um, the medium was talking with the dead guy, you see his reactions. So then you start to wonder like, does he know more than he's letting on or just some of the stories that were told with the other people's perspectives or, or just some of the details that you see, you start to wonder, like, we're not hearing everything, but once you start hearing their stories, it sort of fits together. So it's just a different way of approaching it. And I, I think that maybe if you watch it twice, you'll get more out of it. Maybe if you watch it the first time just to see it. And then mm -hmm. the second time as if it's a mystery, you still get something out of it, I think. Right. And uh, anybody else? Yeah, um, I would just say I I love detective fiction and mysteries, but I agree that I think it's completely pointless to try to look at this movie in that way. Or not pointless, but it's just, you're never going to get an answer. And I think the point is that you're never going to get an answer. Exactly. It completely blows up the like detective fiction thing. Um, and, and I guess like during the 20th century, detective fiction became a very popular genre, Agatha Christie, mm -hmm. Josephine Tay. I mean, you can name a million detective fiction writers and those are super fun. And for some reason, super comforting to watch. <laughs> and this just is, this just is trying to uh, reach a deeper truth about that kind of thing. Like he, you're really never gonna know. Even people that were involved in the story mm -hmm. may not really know 100% what happened in this situation. And Laura, what did you think? Well, I think it can't be necessarily a mystery because within each story that the character tells in their version of it, the facts are the same. The person who gets killed gets killed. The woman gets raped each time. And we know who killed him, except for what... That's, I suppose that could be um, argued, but... To me, it's sort of clear. So with those basic facts, with the nuances being argued, it, to me, it's, it can't be a mystery. Okay. Well, who do you think killed him? <laughs> which, one, which one did you believe? Did well, the, there was only, there was this three of the same person killing him versus the one where he killed himself. Wait, no, actually there's... I well, I think it's well, about one where you weren't sure. Like, there's one you weren't sure, right? Yeah. yeah. But even then, it's like about motivation of of like, was he urged to kill the husband, or did he do it of his own desire? You know, like right. uh, the bandit. I mean, and right. so so I think that there's still like an ambiguity there about like who's aligned with who, um, even if you did see those as basically being the same thing, which. I would argue they're not, but I, I understand what you're saying. 
Um, yeah. I yeah. assume that with the wife, because she says, oh, I, I fainted in her telling of it. She faints and she wakes up and he's dead. I assume she was either lying or just that she killed him in her story. I'm not saying that's like actually what happened or not, but and just she fainted from it or like her body like blacked her out from experiencing this. Um, yeah, I kind of wondered that, too. And I also thought the bystander story, although it could be considered like the most credible because he didn't really have any reason to lie about what happened between the three characters. In the end, he's the one that stole the dagger. So it could be that the wife passed out. He went in, killed the guy, took the dagger. <laughs> you know, I don't know. So to me, it's not clear necessarily like right. what happened yeah because he also like during the whole thing when the medium came like i said before like when you should see the look on his face when she said like someone took the dagger out of me and oh, yeah. he just looks really sketchy when he's like he's a little bit nervous yeah. so you're not even sure like he could have or he could have just taken it but also i i think the a lot of what this movie plays on is the idea of an unreliable narrator and in this one all four of them are potentially unreliable so like mm -hmm. it, it, to see anything that anyone of them says as a fact is is taking them at a, at a face value that I don't think the movie necessarily takes them at. Like it, it's, I think they're all called into question on their reliability from the start or, or maybe not from the start, but like eventually they're called, yeah. you know, you, I don't know that you should believe anything that any of them says, but. It's true. Sure. I mean, I, I, for the film itself, it appears that the ideas of, is man inherently evil or is truth subjective or objective is what the themes are of the film. And so that each character tells these version where they potentially look somewhat like they're the way they want to have reacted in it. Mm -hmm. But that said, each version had the same rape in it and the woman reacting to being raped. And it was almost, that part was always dealt with as just, oh, that's just happened. So, you know, it's just fact. It's not really the issue here. Let's, we're moving on. Everything else is just sort of like, it's now is the real motivation, how people act now and how like, the, is the woman evil because of her shame? And is he ashamed? It just, it seemed like it's just sort of an afterthought in a way. Well, I mean, I think that the whole thing wouldn't have happened if the guy hadn't done that if the bandit hadn't raped her they the there wouldn't have been this concept of her having a stain on her reputation or him having a stain the her husband having a stain on his wife or there being a stain on the marriage I think a lot of the ambiguity about what happened after the after that only happens because of that so I kind of I mean well of course rape it does is propel. not something yeah yeah that it propels the story but it, to yeah. me, it just isn't really dealt with as an issue that mattered to mm -hmm. what that, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean. It was just I, like men I, do I, what they do and then you got to deal with it. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I think if we're judging it even from this, the values of 1950, like obviously it's reprehensible, but like, the, and, and it's reprehensible when it actually happened, but like the, in the time that the story takes place, it's the 11th century and women are not, valued in the same way so I, th I think that like that's part of the fabric of the story um i'm not saying that they're right of course but i i just think that that's um to be expected to some degree for a story told in that period everything was just so heightened and over the top and it was um i actually googled was kurosawa um influenced by kabuki theater or mm -hmm. something like that because i was so just the acting was so ridiculous. Like it just <laughs> seemed kind of ridiculous on some level. Um, but, and he didn't actually, he wasn't a fan of Kabuki. He was more interested and inspired by no, but um, anyway, I, there's so much research I probably could have done on that, but I just, I felt like the acting style was what was really um, difficult to wrap my head around. It seemed, you know, almost Shakespearean in the sense that it was they're acting at each other versus in the same room. Right. Yeah, it felt kind of like a silent movie in that way, in that like the acting was just so broad so people could, you know, 
they could get what they could out of the performances, not necessarily the dialogue. Well, he was really in something I was reading. Wikipedia, why am I lying? Um, <laughs> my subjective <laughs> truth is that I read many in-depth analysis of this movie um, when in reality I read Wikipedia. Um, but he he was very influenced by silent movies and how much was conveyed by like, you know, your facial expressions, your movements, all of that, as opposed to your dialogue. Um, so you're right there. Um, I was going to say earlier, too, when we were talking about the what you were saying, Laura, about how like this woman is raped and it's just more like this jumping off point for the story as opposed to like an issue. And I mean, to me watching it, that was part of what felt so, oh, this could have come out yesterday in a way. Because like how many in her reaction too, in I think all the stories, but of like, oh, this is my fault. I need to be punished for this. And, you know, no to two men can't know that this happened to me so someone has to die here or I'm gonna like run off into the woods and we don't know what happened like you know and how you many- think a movie like that could come out yesterday I think in real life it could come out yesterday how many no I, I mean yes out? real life yeah yeah I just don't think a film would be made with and could could potentially be made personally uh, well, I mean I, I think I if you're studying it in, in that yeah. era you probably yeah, and not that I would want oh. to see that. Yeah, not like. But... Sorry, I didn't mean like a modern movie, but I mean like I see. Yeah, a like modern a story. A modern story, right? Yeah. Okay. But I, th- I, I but I do feel like it feels very modern because I think you know, look around the world and look at how many women are not believed for experiences that happened to them, or mm-hmm. they don't report it for. A variety of reasons and so it doesn't get involved in the justice system or the justice system doesn't believe it even after it has been reported well and there's still they still do honor killings mm-hmm. in certain parts of the world it's not like this only it's not like this really stopped happening anywhere True. actually come to think of it you know mm-hmm. it's happened even in the u.s within i mean of course they usually prosecute the people but it still happens yeah um i, I had two things i wanted to say um I, I I think I get what you're saying, Laura. Like I, that did cross my mind. Of would a rape in a story be treated in the same way in a movie produced today? Like I I think you're largely right. Like it, especially if it was a story that was set in a more contemporary time to ours. Um, I I, th- I think that like there have been movies that have been out that get criticized for using a rape as a plot device without really like getting into the ramifications of that. That that's something that has started mm-hmm. to happen in more recent years. Whereas it was like more prevalent, like just five, 10, 20 years ago for a movie to just like, be like, here's a rape all of a sudden. And, and it'd be just this very casual part of a movie. Like it's fucking revenge of the nerds. There's a rape, right. in it, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, so that that's what I wanted to say that, but also just to, to the, your point about, the acting, I, I'm not saying this is like a justification for it, but I just thought it was an interesting trivia piece that I saw that uh, Kurosawa told Mifune to act like a wild animal. And he apparently based his performance on um, portrayals of lions that he saw in, in documentaries at the time. <laughs> so mm. I don't That's know. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the courtroom scene, he's really <laughs> doing something with yeah. his performance. That's yeah, for yeah. Sure. and the medium. That was like my favorite oh, part of the movie. I was yeah. like, oh my God, this is nuts. But then the woman yeah. in the, is it in the, which story where she really loses it? Is it the woodcutters one? Where I she's think it's also, the last one. The last yeah. one, yeah. The last one she really does. Yeah. She's like mm-hmm. la- doing the same thing as him, which I was like, wait, are they supposed to be connected here or is it just like she's also like losing her mind in this way i thought like she was laughing. mocking him that's what i Maybe. felt like she was yeah. trying to goad him into the fight oh that's right right you know i i think that that's how they were trying to portray obviously i think you're absolutely right she was mocking him and trying to goad him into the fight but at the same time she was also in trauma and who knows how this woman was reacting you know what was motivating all that you know, it was, it was all just man's perspective over and over and over again. And it's not that she wasn't believed or that she, it just didn't, or she couldn't report it. It's just that part just didn't matter much in, in terms of the court, I suppose, is what kind of struck me. But 
I, I definitely hear what you guys are saying. Um, I, I wanted to kind of go back to the, the puzzle thing uh, just for a second. Um, so I guess like I asked that question because it's something that annoys me sometimes. Like I think what particularly annoyed me is I, I went on YouTube after watching the movie to find like videos of commentary or people talking about the movie and all. And I kept coming across a couple of videos that were like people trying to reconstruct the movie in almost like a courtroom fashion of like to prove a case. And mm -hmm. like, there, I, I think it's all well and good to do that mm -hmm. for your own like intellectual exercise. Um, or like Steven was doing of like, I've seen the movie and I want to watch it again with that in mind. And, mm -hmm. but even then, Steven, you didn't come away with it. Like I have to solve this or this movie sucks. Like, <laughs> but, but that's, that's, that's kind of like the vibe I was getting from seeing these things is that people like think that it's a flawed movie if you can't apply a logic to it that is not intended or a, a sort of like a case file or something like that you can't like reconstruct it the truth when like the movie is so much about not being able to find the truth through all the different ways people see their own experience so and, and it just then got me thinking about like other things in like pop culture that annoy me like i was telling Mia <laughs> earlier about this uh i mean related to this though like there's there's this there's this website or web series called cinema sins where like their whole deal is that they just like rip a movie apart for every continuity error or logic mm -hmm. plot hole thing, not stopping to like look at the movie as a whole. It, they just like quantify a movie as like the mistakes they made. And that sounds like some sort of sexual thrill. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that they're getting from, but, but it's just like this like wrongheaded approach to me to like, to in, enjoying or just consuming a work of art or entertainment for that matter. And so I, I guess that's what made me want to ask the question, but like, I'm glad that the answers didn't all necessarily go there. Like I thought it was more interesting <laughs> to hear what you guys had to say about it uh, than just uh, whatever I'm saying now. <laughs> well, well, something else that I was thinking yeah. too is, you know, we never, the trial never concludes. We never mm -hmm. find out like whoever the judge or the jury they mm -hmm. never render a verdict, which Alicia, when you were talking about like detective stories and things like that, you know, it usually is like, okay, either the like, you know, wizard detective person <laughs> figures it out or there's a right. trial and like whether de the decision that's made is right or wrong, but like, you know, a, people look at the facts and make a decision, but in this, that's never done. So I'm, have assumed from that, that the director didn't want it to be. Yes solved yeah. it is supposed to be ambiguous well i think that goes straight to the fact that we never see or hear the judge that they're giving this testimony to they're talking to us so it's mm -hmm. like it, they're mm -hmm. asking us to make the judgment on, mm -hmm. on the or kursawa is i guess right so sure that, that's yeah. my interpretation of it yeah but, and if they had had a verdict i guess you could go back and really see is the guy guilty is he not guilty and that right. would have made it a different story completely which i don't think he wanted to tell did anyone um, think about this movie in the context of like our, our justice system today at all? It had me thinking about that too, because like th there are people who think that a trial gives you the truth. And like, if somebody's found guilty, they're guilty and that's it. Meanwhile, there are people who are on death row who are then found to be innocent and get out of prison. And like, it, it, it just had me thinking about the fact that our justice system can't even account for this like in the 21st century, uh, a thousand years ago, like, I I mean. Because humans are inherently flawed. Their truth is all yeah, it, subjective. So. Yeah, it's all subjective. Yeah. And it's it, you can't kind of know what happened. The only person who's going to know what happened are the people who are there, but they're still going to color it with exactly. their own experience and interpretation of what other people were doing and, and all that. And it also had me thinking about our current culture of like having two silos of information connected to two political parties and mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing. Like, I, I was curious if that was something that anyone else had, had kind of thought of while watching the movie. Yeah, well, I think it does like what you said about the justice system. It's like it, everything's subjective and it just boils down to like if the person is believable in an honorable person. And you do at first believe the guy who was the witness 
until you find out that he stole the dagger at the end. Then you're like, it, it brings into question everything else that he had said, because mm -hmm. he was the one that you felt like was telling the truth and being honest. But, you know, in regards to the other stories that were told where everybody had an agenda, all of a sudden he has one and it completely changes everything. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it did make me think of, of the justice system and how that happens. And, you know, it depends on who you, you feel like is gonna tell the story that you wanna hear, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just going to say, in terms of the justice system, it's obviously flawed. Um, and yeah, and it, it, this definitely completely relates to that. But I do think, I mean, I do think there's not really a, there's not a much better system <laughs> that we could have. I mean, there, there are improvements that could be made to the current system 100%. But I don't know. I don't know. I don't think you can ever 100%. There's no way unless there's video cameras running all the time mm -hmm. from every different angle, <laughs> you know, everywhere in the world. There's no way that we can ever, you know, get a definitive 100% sure, true answer all the time. And so we, I think we just kind of have, we just kind of do, do our best when it comes to that. You try to, if you're, if you're on a jury, you try to come in with an open mind and hopefully you can do that. Um, but in relation to like politics, you know, we're, we're kind of lost right now. I don't know how, yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't relate it to that, but, um, but it's troubling. It's definitely a troubling situation. Other than the woodcutter and I guess the dead man, cause like the bandit says that he murdered him. Right. And then the wife also, well, she says she blacked out and right. then mm -hmm. the dead man, who does he say killed him? He said he killed himself. He said he killed, killed himself. Yeah. Okay. So everyone basically incriminates themselves other than the woodcutter. Right. Right? Yeah. So I just thought that was interesting too because it's like, you know, normally – like because the way I was thinking about it when I was watching this was like we each have our own truth of the world and we usually through that perspective are like elevating ourselves or, you know, just whatever. You're trying to make yourself look the best whether you're consciously doing that or not. And – you know, every piece of information that you're taking in is either is reinforcing your worldview of yourself and then other things around you, which I thought a lot about like the misinformation today when I was watching this of just like, oh, if something comes in that contradicts your worldview, you just don't even absorb it. Like you just spit it back out and you're like, well, no, that can't be true. And but with this, it's like this twist that they put in where it's not like the the wife isn't saying I didn't do it. You know, to her, at least it's unclear who did this. She just woke up and it had happened. But, you know, the bandit like totally confesses, even though I guess in his defense, he says, I didn't mean to do it or I didn't intend to do it, but he still did. And that's what's going to matter to the judge or the jury at the end of the day. Yeah, it was interesting about the the bandit. I remembered when the first guy who had him tied up was talking about like you got kicked off that horse. And then he completely mm -hmm. like was like, no, no, I got sick when I was drinking this water. And so I feel like he was going to admit to the murder no matter what, because he's the bandit. He has this reputation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So whatever was going to come in there, he was going to completely deflect it because he'd rather have that kind of, you know, honor of, of being such a bad guy that like he would rather that than to admit that he didn't do it. Or he won the contest by accident when, you know, they were rolling around on the ground. He would never admit. It still is reinforcing his worldview. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's why I believe that he did it, or that's how I felt the film was what was trying to convey. Even though there was a lot of hyperbole about how in his version it was still, and then he, it's the fact that he didn't want to, and then he did it, and then the woodcutter's version is and showed it much more realistically. They were both scared to death, rolling around, being ridiculous, but he ends mm -hmm. up killing him. Right. So because of those two um, sort of bookends. That's how come I potentially, you know, wrongly walked away with a more definitive idea of what was ha what had happened in the film. Mm. I I think it's also interesting that the the woodcutter his story like at first makes him seem like a bad person once once there's the like the turn of of that third guy at the at the Rashomon Gate saying like oh mm -hmm. I'm I'm on to you you're the one who stole the dagger and. Uh, and then the priest is like holding that against him, but uh, then kind of turns back because he's like, oh, this guy is a father of six. And to me, the implication was also that like this was this bejeweled dagger that was going to be worth money. So this guy could use the money for the dagger to feed his six kids. Plus, he was going to now raise this other child. And it was like 
this kind of seesaw for this priest of like, uh, like this guy's a piece of shit. This guy's great. Like, so it's <laughs> yeah, it's like there's I, nothing is like a continuous <laughs> line here. It's like everything is up and down in terms of its uh, believability to to even the characters in the movie. I thought it was wild that the priest let that guy take the baby. <laughs> I was like, maybe he knows him. I don't know. It's like, maybe these people know each other. He was like, I don't want to take it. Well, I mean, I guess like, Like, I don't want a baby. But I mean, (laughs) I just had to, I just had to assume that he knew the man was telling the truth in that instance. Otherwise, like, I I just was like, why on earth after what you just sat there and like experienced, would you take his word for it that he's a father of six and he's going to raise this kid? But that baby teleported there too. Yeah. Yeah. Out of nowhere. I know. I was like, wait, where, what, why? (laughs) I saw the woodcutter's role as being more of a reflection of us watching the film, the audience in the sense that he wasn't skewed by his, well, he was skewed by his own motivations, but his reactions were more relatable in terms of what would I do in that situation? If I had six kids and I would just witnessed a murder, like, I suppose that's how I looked at it. But so I was glad that the priest found some sort of comfort at the end because he was real yeah. struggling. He was really struggling. Right. Me too. But, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, didn't mean, I didn't mean to say that you weren't. <laughs> I think but it's yeah, sort of like of the bone Kurosawa throws to the audience, like after breaking their like faith in humanity. He's like, well, but not everybody's bad, maybe, you know, it's like, <laughs> or, or like where there's life, there's hope, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a new life. Right. Who knows how mm-hmm. it's going to turn out. There's yeah. varying degrees of everybody. There's shades of gray. You know, he could still be a thief, but still be a good dad. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like no one is or few people at least are always bad just in the same way that few people are always going to be good. And it made me think of the daughter-in-law from Tokyo story where at the end and the, you know, patriarch dad dude is like, Oh, you're so good. No, we want all these good things for you. Go and get married. And she's like, no, I'm really not. And it's like, you know, her perspective of herself is that she is this flawed person and whereas from the outside it seems like she's always doing the right thing and so caring and all of that um, Mariko yes Mariko, thank you for I just thought what a great performance that was for and some still, reason yeah. the idea of like mm-hmm. oh this this guy could be a thief but still be a good dad made me start thinking of Christopher Baltasante and the Sopranos and his dad like he got killed bringing me a TV tray so I could watch TV and eat food or whatever uh-huh. the fuck <laughs> yeah. I boycotted the Sopranos Fair I've never watched it either. I've, I've, really seen, I've it. seen enough Italian men doing, <laughs> doing mom things in my life. So is, is there anything else about, oh, Alicia, you had something? I did have a question um, about Japanese, or the, at least the book saying that the reason Japanese critics, or the reason that's been mm. attributed to Japanese critics not liking it that much is that it was too Western. And I guess I was kind of just wondering was there anything specific? I, I I do think there's that it's obviously like Western influence, but I didn't think it was like super more Western influence than Tokyo Story. So I was just wondering if there was anything, maybe just like the pace of action or right. that we, that you guys thought was was more Western than Tokyo Story. I mean, personally, I think it's a lot more Western in style than Tokyo Story. I'm not sure I expressed it well in our discussion of Tokyo Story, but I think there's so much about the craft of that movie, like the the actual filmmaking, the way it's edited and shot, that is so, at least at that time, different than what was happening in Hollywood movies and Western cinema in general. But if you told me that Kurosawa did what Orson Welles supposedly did and just watched Stagecoach 50 times to learn how to make a movie, like John, the John Ford movie, I'd be... I'd be convinced, you know, because like I think that the way he paces action and the way he shot the film seemed a lot more like a Hollywood movie than a lot of other um, just any uh, international cinema that I've seen from that time, really, um, except for the other filmmakers that I know were very influenced by Western filmmakers. But I also think that's something that with Kurosawa, it's kind of hard to track even because it, it just feeds right back into itself because like he took this Western filmmaking style, made his movies that then immediately started 
influencing Western filmmakers where they're like remaking like every other one of his movies for like 10 or 15 years. So anyway, that's a point. I guess I just don't know enough about like the actual craft of filmmaking or maybe I'm just coming at it from such a, such a much later having viewed it so much later in, in time than someone who would have viewed it in 1950 that it was hard for me to like parse those differences. I'm with you, Alicia. I'm not as learned. Like I am not a scholar on film, so I really wouldn't be able to tell. You're a filmmaker. I've made a- <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But I mean, several but, films. But that's, that's the question that you were asking is um, complicated. And I, I just wouldn't know how to answer that. Were they made by a lot of uh, like, there's like Western as in like Western type movies. Like, were they like those? Because it did feel like I was watching like almost like a Western movie as in, you know, the Cowboys. genre of Western. There's a horse. The genre. <laughs> yeah. No, just in general, like the way that it was sort of structured also. Yeah. Like, I just was curious if maybe that's why it, it did well. I mean, maybe that's part of it. I'm not um, sure. It was based off of a Japanese short story. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that the telling, I think, was, I think, inspired by that. Not that I've read it, but I read that. <laughs> Well, I think Japanese, don't they have their own, they have like their own, like sort of in a parallel to like, sort of like chivalry and knightly tales. I think that there's like samurai literature and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why Kurosawa caught on and kept getting remade a lot because like there, there's a lot of overlap or parallel between the supposed code of cowboys in the old West and Mm -hmm. samurai, um, which he made quite a few samurai pictures you know but uh, you had something you wanted to say yeah I mean it it was sort of essentially that of just to me it didn't necessarily feel like a Japanese movie in the way that Tokyo Story did where like so much of Tokyo Story you're like seeing the homes there's like these very specific like you know they take off their shoes in the house or like people's Mm -hmm. reactions to stuff was all things that we perhaps ignorantly chalk but I think rightly so chalked up to like Japanese culture and this movie to me, I think because, you know, a woman's honor is this universal thing, especially in that era, it didn't feel so like, oh, this is a Japanese movie as like it could have been an American Western or a knight in Europe back in the day or someone here. Um, I forget what the original question was that why I was answering that, but that was my <laughs> point to it. <laughs> To what Alicia was saying before, if, if I had to point out one thing that for me separated, just using the examples again of Tokyo Story and, and Rashomon, like I think that this movie mostly adheres to like continuity editing and uh, and shooting. Like it, things are shot in a way that it's continuous action uh, when, when there is that to be had. Whereas in, in Tokyo Story, they don't necessarily do that much. It's like they don't move. Yeah, the, the camera doesn't move for one. But yeah. then even when they do cut, um, it's they're not paying attention to like, oh, we're staying on the same side of the line for continuity, which is a big thing for for filmmakers. And they don't even cut the shots when we w- would cut them normally in Tokyo Story. Like in Tokyo Story, there's like this lead before the action starts and then they linger after it's over and everyone's left the frame, which if that was a Hollywood movie, they'd be like, fuck that. We're cutting all those frames out of this movie, you Mm -hmm. know? So those formal things were the things that to me, like marked that as a a less Western style film making movie. I think the story is universal and like, it's kind of still crazy to me in a way that the studio behind Tokyo story thought that, no one would get it outside of Japan, apparently. But because yeah. in some ways, I think that story is more universal because it's like about modern family and all. And this, mm-hmm. this like has Rashomon has so much about it that seems almost like stereotypical Japanese now because like we we tend to think of samurai culture and uh, you know feudal Japan as this romanticized thing that isn't necessarily that representative of this of the country as it exists today um but anyway i would love to see a tokyo story told like 
Rashomon from all the different persons. <laughs> <laughs> like all the different kids. And, and someone finally yeah. beat up one of the grandkids. Yeah. <laughs> like, wouldn't that be interesting? Spank them. Yeah. The older daughter, I'd love to see her. Yeah. Story. That's like, what I was thinking. Exactly. <laughs> like uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Right. With, uh, with like the, the, the son's wife. That's <laughs> kind of what I would appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so what was everyone's favorite scene or moment or some element of the movie? I liked the, Laura referenced it already, the the fight between the bandit and uh, the husband from the bystander, the woodcutter's point of view, because it was so much more realistic to me that like, <laughs> of course, everyone, you know, everyone wants to believe there. I don't know if they want to believe, but everyone sort of believes or wants to think of themselves as like this great fighter or that uh, when men cross swords that it's like this graceful ballet or this like amazing action sequence. You almost never see like a really messy, stupid, <laughs> like poorly done fight on TV or in movies. And, and, and I loved that, that this movie did that like the way that they use sweat in this movie, it just felt mm -hmm. like an, another character almost when you were mm -hmm. watching some of the scenes. Mm -hmm. But there was one part, I think it's when the wife was looking over the shoulder of the bandit and you could see a close up of her eye and then you could see the sweat on her face. It just was like such a powerful thing to watch. And just in general, I, I liked her as a character. Just, I felt like she was a little bit more nuanced, at least what we saw in all of the, uh, in all the different perspectives. I mentioned before, um, I just was really taken by the use of light throughout the film and even though I can't recall a specific shot I just remember um, really appreciating how specific and how it helped tell the story yeah I like there's a part where they were um, when the trial was happening and you could tell the sun was moving every time they would go back to you know do another testimony mm. I thought that was really interesting well and speaking of the sun and a specific use of light uh, I guess the movie is well known for they say that it's the first movie where they pointed the camera at the sun. Um, mm. Those mm. shots going up through the leaves. Th those mm -hmm. shots are something that stuck with me for the, like the last 20 years since I saw it. Um, and I, But I'm not even sure if they stuck with me because I remembered them my own self or like that I read afterwards that people were so influenced by that and were like, oh, I can point a camera up. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah. um, but that and then like the the performance of the medium um, and the mm -hmm. weirdness of, of of how they do that with the voice and, and stuff like those are the two things that stick out to me in the movie. If I, I loved to. how they did that sort of matter of factly. There was yeah. no one who just didn't believe True. the medium. Mm -hmm. like, All right. We're in here. We're yeah. doing this. It's just an accepted <laughs> thing. Yeah, that was I loved of, that. Yeah. yeah. The medium was my favorite part or a scene I really liked at least and yeah I kind of had the same thing so I was like wait a medium like what is gonna happen where is this going and I just thought it like the voice was so cool it really worked and yeah no one was like wait a second can we have a medium at a trial like it was just like yeah of course we have to hear the from the dead man duh <laughs> you sworn in like everybody else <laughs> <laughs> so has the movie as far as everyone's concerned stood the test of time or what do you, any any thoughts on that? Yeah, they still employ it too. You know, the yeah. Rashomon effect. Or, yeah. yeah, they still yeah, yeah. the Taylor. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. I mean, just because I didn't enjoy it um, doesn't mean I don't appreciate what the filmmaker did. And it was, yeah, yeah, it definitely stands the test of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah, me too. Yeah, and obviously, I think it's still influential. Um, you know, you could watch uh, some random TV show sometimes and see them rip off the plot. So, you know. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Speaking of that, you should. There's an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation called "What Is It Called?" Uh, I wrote it down. Uh, a matter of perspective, and that's what that's what the episode is. It was like something. There was some explosion, and two of the characters were involved, and they tell the different stories. Mm. And you know, based on what one of the characters is like, it could be possible that he did this, but. You know, because he's a Starfleet officer, you're like, no, he couldn't have. So it's really interesting, though. All right. Should we go to our bonus question? So I picked the bonus question this time around. So it is, which international or non-English language film is either your favorite or first made you want to explore more from that country or region? And anybody want to start us off? 
I can't remember if it's like the first one I saw, but it, it isn't obviously because it was made much later and I've seen other foreign films. But one that really struck me was Volver um, with Pedro Almodovar, mm. if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, just because of the way that the story was told, it's in 2006 and it's also, you know, it takes place in Spain. And um, it just wasn't Western at all. Like just the way that they kind of unfolded the characters and the way that it was, um, you know, the characters were all strong female characters. So. I just really got a lot out of that. I haven't explored much in Spain after that, but I did really, it really struck me and it was just different. Alicia? Um, yeah, I, I had a hard time like remembering the first foreign or international film that I'd seen, but um, I did post in, in the Facebook group. Uh, the first one I remember really like personally wanting to go see in the movie theater was Amelie the French film that came out, I think 2000 or 2001 with Audrey Tattoo. Um, and yeah, I guess maybe that sort of kicked things off for me, <laughs> but I also always love British film. I know we're talking about like foreign language film, but I, I have seen British film from a very young age too. Um, and always loved that also. So, Do you have a specific one you want to mention? Cause I think um, that's fair to bring up too. I, I, the first British film I remember seeing was Educating Rita. Um, which oh, was, I love that. Yeah, with Michael Caine and um, Julie Walters. And I, I was like, so I had to be like five movie. or six years old. And I just was like, I love this. <laughs> I don't even know why. <laughs> I don't know if I understood everything that was happening in it, but I just really liked it. And yeah, I think not only like for British film, but just for like films that are like a sort of a, just about like people doing people, average people things and not, not, you know, not a grand love story, not an action film, just like a film about a woman and her mentor. I liked it. I love that. And the soundtrack, that 80s synth. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> it's really good. It's very, um, I don't hear about it a lot. People don't talk about it much. Mm -hmm. Nice mm -hmm. to hear about. And Laura, how about you? I thought of La Femme Nikita which I saw, it's 1990 Luc Bichon film, um, assassin, you know, hot girl. It's basically, all of his themes are, he's, he's got a style that he's taken throughout his career. And, but this is, I think was one of the best of, of the bunch that he did personally. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah. Um, so I said City of God. I don't know if that was, actually the first foreign film I watched but it was the one that popped into my head and it came out I think here in 2003 and I just remember me and my friends watching it like all the time and people being so into it um and it was really just like different from any other movie I had seen um and then a more recent one that I would recommend if folks haven't seen it is um Cold War which is set in Poland oh, I so good it's just like so beautiful um and yeah, I would definitely, I saw it in theaters some time ago, but now I really want to rewatch it because it's so good. It's beautifully shot. Yeah. Beautiful. And like the singing is so good. It's oh, just yeah. like oy such oy. a beautiful <laughs> Yeah, you guys should see it. Yeah. It's very good. Yeah. Um, and then I, I, I think the first foreign film I had to have seen was probably Red Balloon. Did anybody else see this in grade I school think i did like was I that think a I thing did. okay yeah i uh, hated it you hated yeah, it I, I think i must have blocked it out <laughs> until you mentioned it well if, if, there's not a lot of dialogue if any in that movie so i think it's like an easy one to show to kids because it it plays almost like a a cartoon or something you know mm -hmm. this kid like just chasing this balloon around right mm -hmm. um that's what i remember of it it I probably haven't seen it in 30 years or more but um <laughs> but I think for movies that made me want to like watch more movies, uh, like I can't even remember where it started, but it was like, it had to be like Kurosawa and either this movie or seven samurai. Cause I can't remember which I saw first, um, this movie being Rashomon and, or Fellini and eight and a half or mm -hmm. Bergman and seventh seal, which I was not that into when I saw it, but it still made me want to like look at more of his movies. Um, but I, I can't remember the timeline of which of those I saw first because it was all, all kind of a jumble. Yeah. And we got some good answers from the Facebook group as well. So Max said, Joaquin Trier's films really shook him very deeply. Reprise 
got him enthusiastic about the filmmaker. Then Oslo, August 31st, was even better. It was one of the most affecting films he's ever seen. But it just totally devastated him, and it was so deeply sad and beautiful. I haven't seen any of those movies, so I'm curious about those. I haven't either. Yeah. No, me neither. I've, I've heard of I mean, Oslo, August 31st, and Reprise, but I don't even know what they're about, really. Um, and then Gavin said Seven Samurai or La Dolce Vita. And Charlie said that maybe his answer should be, I, I realized when I knew that I was going to have to say this on the podcast that I've never said this title out loud before. So is it Trois Color Blue? Am I even close to pronouncing that correctly? Blue. Close. Okay. Blue, yeah. That's the movie that he wanted to cite. Um, but he said he probably wouldn't have gotten there without watching Hope and Glory, which was the first independent or art film that he really got into. I was going to say Hope and Glory, but it's, since it was it's English speaking, I didn't mention it. Well, I think that's why he wanted to call the out caveat. Blue instead. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So some good answers there. Some stuff to to check out maybe definitely um so our next episode uh this was the last pick for our first round of episodes actually so our next episode is going to be something different we'll be picking our next round of movies to watch and we'll also be revisiting our first round and adding any additional thoughts we've had since we first recorded as well as perhaps bringing in more thoughts by some of our listeners and especially members of the facebook group so if anybody wants to share their thoughts on The Passion of Joan of Arc, Magnificent Ambersons, Citizen Kane, Tokyo Story, or Rashomon, please send them our way. And like we said before, Sarah Active Movie Club isn't supposed to be just the five of us chatting. We do want it to be an open discussion with people. Uh, so like I said, share your thoughts. You can do that at our Facebook group, which is at facebook.com slash groups slash Stereoactive Movie Club. Or you can email us at StereoactiveMovieClub at gmail.com. You can also send us a voice message on our show page at anchor.fm slash StereoactiveMovieClub. This podcast is produced by Stereoactive Media. Stereoactive Media.